Would you turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4? I'll be reading there in a minute. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can find Philippians 4 on page 953 of the blue Bibles under the chairs in front of you. I always encourage you to have a Bible open rather than an app because it's just so much easier to glance around and see where I might be referring us to, look back out of your own curiosity if you've been here this summer and you're remembering something from earlier in the Philippians, uh, one flip page, one flip of the page gets you the entire letter. Um, And by the way, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but uh, first message of this series at the beginning of the summer, I challenged everyone to read through Philippians a few times this summer. And um, I'm guessing, I don't, I don't want to see a show of hands. <laughs> I'm guessing very few of you have done that. But uh, I think I said something like during our public reading of Scripture, 24 hours, Genesis through Revelation right here every spring, it uh, has taken us about 22 minutes to read through the letter of Philippians. It's not a big commitment. So maybe this Sunday afternoon, um, you'd uh, give it a shot and uh, read from uh, 1 through 4. We're on the home stretch of this series. We're going to finish two weeks from today on Labor Day Sunday. Uh, and these are Paul's concluding thoughts, starting chapter 4 this uh, morning. He doesn't know if he'll ever see these friends again. So the last words of a not-yet-dying man, he knows he's going to survive. Somehow the Spirit has told him that. But the last words of a leader speaking to people that he dearly loves. Fascinating opportunity for us to peek in on what he has to say. What does he want them to hear? Paul urges in today's text, faithfulness in the face of challenges to biblical faith. He urges unity in conflict. He urges, instead of anxiety, a prayerfulness that comes before the Lord in all things. And uh, he urges joy at the same time. And throughout all of this, what connects these themes together is the promise of God's all-satisfying peace. That's what we'll see. If you're able to, would you stand with me as I read this passage? Listen carefully. These are God's words. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we need peace. We need it in abundance. We need it to shower upon us. 
We need it to displace what is fearful, anxious, uncertain in us. So Holy Spirit, do this work. We claim the promise of Scripture this day. And we do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to walk through these nine verses with just three words, the key words that we'll find, unity, joy, and peace. Real simple, unity. Paul has just finished warning the Philippian church against false teachers, and in light of the return of Jesus, what he just said at the end of chapter 3, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, stand firm, therefore, persevere. Wrapped around that simple statement, is a ton of affection. Just look at verse one. He calls them brothers and sisters, right? Common family, spiritual family language. You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. It's almost too much. It's almost like a a sappy Hallmark card gone over the top. But this man in prison is just authentically showing his heart affections for these people. You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. And he closes this single sentence with one more term of endearment. Dear friends, all of that affection brings him all the more pain because he knows that there's conflict in the church. He names two women. He names them. (laughs) 2,000 years later, we know who was fighting. He calls them out. But he pleads with them with this affection, right? That doesn't the way he starts chapter one um, appropriately frame a rebuke, right? It's pleading out of love. I, I long for you to be reconciled, to pursue unity. He asks this person apparently who's going to receive this letter and share it with the church at Philippi. He asks this particular person, I ask you, my true companion, help these women, it's, it's a family affair. They have served alongside Paul. T- to some extent, uh, he calls them co-laborers. Maybe they're people of influence, and if they are, their conflict has all the more impact on the, the church that gathers in Philippi. Right? Everybody knows it. People are talking about it. People are uncomfortable on Sunday mornings, maybe. And so he pleads with them. He doesn't say, ladies, meet in the middle. Find some common ground, compromise. It's not biblical reconciliation. He says instead, be of the same mind in the Lord. I want to give you a little peek into the relationships uh, on our session. That's our board of elders, currently comprised of two pastors and seven men that we call ruling elders. We have nine uh, people on session right now. And um, the simple statement is we don't agree on every decision. We don't agree on every direction. Um, to, uh, this Friday, we'll be gathering overnight for about 30 hours of our session retreat. And we do this annually. We get away. And we pray together and we talk and we plan and we dream. And uh, sometimes we vigorously debate um, and, and sometimes we don't agree, but at the end of the day, over the years, God has done this work of unity among us. One, maybe three of us on a particular issue yields to the others, to the collective wisdom of the nine. And we always communicate to you 
whether in writing or orally, maybe sometimes in a, in a town hall or congregational meeting, we on session decided this and that with no hint about what one or two of us instead preferred to see happen, to see decided. We don't, we don't talk about that at all because it's irrelevant. We, God worked through the collective wisdom of nine men, we have decided this and we're going to uh, lead the church in this direction. It requires unity, dying to self. What I prefer is not always what we decide. And that's a beautiful thing that God has done. It's only possible as the gospel is at work in us and then overflows within our midst. That's a little picture of unity in the church that's more important than unanimity. We'd rather it be that way. So we can sharpen one another, challenge one another. That unity, biblically speaking, is more important than unanimity. All nine, nine zero, vote every single time. Unity is more important. And unity is far richer than uniformity. What does that mean? Nine guys who just think the same way all the time and just fall in line in some kind of pattern. The, the protective element that we celebrate we've talked about this sometimes over the years, is that our different spiritual backgrounds, our different grace stories, and our multi-ethnic makeup actually serve to protect us from the groupthink of uniformity because we're not the same. We come from different um, uh, family stories, some from other parts of the world, and, and the differences sometimes present challenges. Uh, sometimes we, we come at things com from a completely different mindset and we need to cross over to understand where our brother is coming from. Sometimes that presents challenges, but so very often it actually protects GRC's long-term spiritual health and we give praise for that. A little taste of unity. Only the gospel can bring unity because what is needed to taste unity is the Holy Spirit's work of conviction, his, his work to reveal personal sin in each of us, like the pride that so desperately wants to be right and win the argument. Holy Spirit puts that to death. And only the gospel empowers repentance to turn away from what has been exposed to be sin and turns towards Jesus who died for my pride. He experienced the hell of the cross that my pride deserves so that I wouldn't have to. And I'm forgiven. And so as fellow redeemed sinners, I'm still talking about the taste of unity that we have on session. As fellow rescuees, grateful for God's forgiveness, disagreements that could easily put a wedge between any of us are shown for what they are. So very often they're petty. They're insignificant things that we can freely let go of. Not that important as we seek the unity of the gospel in the Lord. That's the key phrase that's always there in, in the Apostle Paul's writings. Unity in the Lord, in, the, in Christ Jesus. And, and unity, as Paul already said in chapter 1, verse 27, looks like conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, that goal alone is characteristic of biblical unity. The second key word we come across is joy. Philippians has often been called the epistle or letter of joy 
because the theme is throughout. Um, the, the words rejoice or joy show up this many times in the letter. And, and I may have missed one or two in, in my scan from verse to verse. And, and don't forget, the writer of this letter of joy is behind bars. But sometimes mere talk about joy, let alone talking about God's promises of joy, sometimes that can stir resentment in us. Either because we look around and we see so many other people with so much more reason, so many more reasons for joy than we have. Or it can stir resentment in us towards God who won't give you what your heart wants. He's not answering that prayer. You promised joy, God. Where is it? Here's what I'd say. If you lack the joy that God wants for you, it's because you don't see how low you are or have been, and you don't see how high you can be or actually are. We'll unpack that a little bit. If you lack the joy God wants for you, right? That's a key qualifying phrase there. God wants for you because he, he loves perfectly. As an as a Abba Father with full wisdom and limitless love, delighting in your delight, if you lack the joy God wants for you, you don't see how low you actually are or have been. Depends on your spiritual um, place on the continuum. And you don't see how high you can be or actually are. Low, what does that mean? Apart from the mercy of God in salvation, you and I, like every human being, would be lost in our sin, fairly and justly judged for our sin because sin is fundamentally a choice of not God and therefore not life and therefore not joy. That's what sin is. We get what we choose. If you don't believe that Jesus is the only Savior of sinners, if you haven't placed your faith in him as Lord, ironically, any lack of joy that you may say you have, lasting pure joy that is not threatened, that will not be reduced or eliminated by suffering, by loss, by disappointment, by loneliness, by rejection. Ironically, any lack of joy in your life comes from not realizing how low you actually are in relation to God himself. You go down before you go up, in a sense. And if you do believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you've trusted in him, that he is your substitute hanging on a cross, paying the penalty of death for your sins, then any lack of joy that you experience as a believer in Jesus, as a Christian, is at least partly rooted in forgetting or in failing to remember on a daily basis, which is necessary, how low you were without Jesus, enslaved in sin, without hope. But now, because of Christ, but God, in, um, in his great mercy, has made us alive with Christ, and you've been forgiven. And with Paul in Romans chapter 8, we can say, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus, you've been set free. You've been redeemed. The peace of God, verses 7 and 9 coming up, that peace is yours to rest in. And of course, high, right? The low to high uh, 
is put into context. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you don't realize how high God longs to raise you. You don't realize that brutal honesty about your own heart, looking in the spiritual mirror and admitting the reality of your sin, low, opens the door to real high. Highest high in resurrection. Paul would say to you from chapter 3, verse 19, their mind is set on earthly things. You can't see high enough because you're just looking in the here and now. You're wanting more of what you can see. You're not dreaming about what you can't see. Paul's mind is always aimed up. Saw this last week, talking about um, the, the truth, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, that every believer in Christ Jesus has already been raised. It's as if it's done. The, the completion of salvation, the, the perfection of every believer in body and soul is as good as done. It awaits the last day when Jesus returns, absolutely. But resurrection power has already been applied in some fashion. A man in prison can only ooze joy when he's confident about resurrection, which is the highest high. Paul goes from rejoice in the Lord, verse 4, to verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. It's a strange word, it seems, to come across. Gentleness. He's talking about spiritual warfare. He's talking about standing firm in the face of opposition. And, he, and, and the word he picks is gentleness. It comes from a Greek word that scholars will say is really difficult to translate. The ESV, some of you use that, says reasonableness with gentleness in the footnote. Uh, either are possible. But scholar Don Carson um, says uh, this, that Paul's use of the word gentleness is the exact opposite of a spirit of contention and self-seeking. Gentleness is the exact opposite of a spirit of contention, right? Contentiousness, always fighting, arguing, uh, in conflict, and self-seeking. That's easy to understand. And that fits what Paul just addressed in the conflict between Yodi and Syntyche. Right? He's pleading with them for unity in the church. It affects everybody. And it definitely fits the chapter 2 profile of Jesus who humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He, he exemplified the opposite of self-seeking. He laid down his life. So Carson offers this translation at the bottom for let your gentleness be evident to all. He says, be known for being self-effacing. Be known for being self-effacing. It's a, kind of a paradox. Uh, to efface is to erase, is to um, cultivate or, or to become insignificant, be known for being self-effacing. But in contrast, what do people today want to be known for? Maybe I'd ask it this way. What do you want to be known for in life? Your Instagram followers? Your children's success that you can not so humbly tell everybody about, what school they got into, how well they're doing, maybe, maybe even how much Bible you know. 
you know, how much you've memorized, how quickly you can come up with the answers to people's questions. What, what do you want to be known for? Paul says, let your gentleness, your self-effacing, Jesus-exalting character, let that be evident to all. Let people say after meeting you, not, what a fascinating personality. What a, what a witty guy. What a funny woman. What, 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 a, what a charismatic person that is. No, instead, let them say to themselves after meeting you, that's a Jesus-loving surprisingly, refreshingly humble and authentic person. I wonder where that comes from. I wonder what's at the, the core of that person that, that shapes them in such a unique way. I don't know that I've met anybody like that. It's very different. For added emphasis, Paul says here, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. I've always assumed that means Jesus is coming back. And it might mean that. And it would fit the context. But a few Bible commentators have convinced me as I've read uh, some, some stuff this past week that it's more likely Paul's saying that the presence of Jesus is close and personal. The Lord is near. Picture this. If you were at a, a dinner party holding court, telling story after story of your adventures and your accomplishments and uh, who you've met and where you've been, trying to impress everybody with, with your life's resume, if you will, with your charismatic personality, and Jesus walked in to the party. Would you simply turn your self-glory-seeking um, efforts to Jesus, to, to look for his approval Jesus, the one with wounds in his hands, feet, and sides. Would you trumpet what you've accomplished to the Savior of sinners? Or the Lord is near. Would you realize that he alone deserves all glory? That whatever you've been talking about is silliness, is folly. That he and only he deserves all the glory. The Lord is near. He's present. Self-promotion shrinks away as you glorify the king. As he is enthroned on your praises, we sung earlier. That picture is the opposite of anxiety. That's where Paul goes next. But in verses 6 to 7, he's not giving this simplistic formula. You know, just pray and you'll feel more peaceful. Just pray and your anxiety will all melt away. That builds resentment. I've tried it. Doesn't work. Don't keep telling me to do the same thing. I don't need religion. Maybe part of it is because you assume that prayer is supposed to bring you what you want. You feel more anxious as you wonder why is God not listening? Does God not care to give me the desires of my heart? These, these aren't bad desires. I'm not asking to rob a bank. I'm not asking for anything illegal. Um, it can build resentment. It can distance you from the heart of God. But when Paul says, look at, look at the text carefully. When Paul says, do not be anxious about anything 
But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The, the absolute terms here he's using are describing a consistent lifestyle that is always Godward. It's, it's, a, it's an all-the-time dependence on God, and, um, and so you pray. It's so instinctive for this all-the-time dependent lifestyle on God. In anything, in everything, with thanksgiving, not... I've got this until I don't, and then I'll knock on your door, God, and you can be my backup. You can sort of fill in where, you know, I haven't quite fixed all the problems in my life. Uh, just, just be ready, because I might need you tomorrow. If I don't, I won't knock. But when I do, I expect you to show up. When I'm at a dead end, I expect you to redirect. When I'm lost, I expect you to tell me how I'm found, Paul says, pray with thanksgiving, with this constant appreciation for what God has done in you. And if you're a believer in Jesus, especially the grace of salvation, constant thanksgiving. What have I done to deserve this rescue? I continue to sin. How, how, how do you forgive me over and over? Give thanks for today's answer to yesterday's prayer. You only give thanks if you're looking for the answer to prayer. You only give thanks if, if the Holy Spirit helps you to see, you prayed this, God wants better for you. And he's answering it this way. Even giving thanks for struggles that God is using to sharpen your faith. James uh, puts it this way at the beginning of his epistle. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Give thanks in all circumstances. Marvel that God can use dead ends and very often uses more dead ends than straight roads to shape you into the likeness of the Savior. And that pattern of God-word, prayer-filled, thankful living will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. End of verse 7. There's that qualifying phrase again. In Christ Jesus. In the Lord. God's peace is only experienced through faith in the only Savior of sinners who lived a perfect life that you haven't lived who died the substitute death that your sins deserve and who rose in victory over the grave. Faith in Jesus alone brings real peace. There is no other peace. Speaking of peace, pause one more thought to share in verses 8 and 9. If you want peace, first make sure you're aiming at the real thing. Not just peace and quiet. Not just a gorgeous 82 degrees, light breeze, sunny day at the beach. It's peaceful. It's not aiming high enough. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. But it's so much more than that. It, it, it points to life as it's supposed to be. Mankind and creator 
in our right relationships with one another, that vertical relationship first and foremost, but sin has affected that. Sin has corrupted it. Sin makes us enemies of God. Sin makes us appropriately objects of justice by the king himself. And so at the heart of salvation is this necessary promise. Romans chapter five, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, if you're a believer in Jesus, this has happened. Since you've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by grace, uh, by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Since we've been justified through faith, if you believe in Jesus, you declared righteous, you have peace. At the heart of the promise of salvation is peace. Sin makes us enemies with God, objects of God's wrath, Ephesians chapter 2 says. Salvation makes us friends. It reconciles us. It draws us near. We have peace. No anxiety or fear can ever be relieved let alone transformed into peace without faith in Christ because enmity with God is our biggest problem. If you think you have bigger problems in life than sin, it'd be like hearing this afternoon that you have stage four cancer, but being more worried that you haven't thought of what to have for dinner or how you're going to talk to your boss tomorrow morning about the mistake you made. Or you're more worried about the zit on your face or the 15 pounds that you really want to lose. You have stage four cancer. That's, that's your biggest problem, um, physically speaking. Everything else fades away. You are an enemy of God in sin. Nothing else matters if that's not resolved. At the heart of salvation is this promise, if you believe in Jesus, you have peace with God. An enemy has been changed to a friend, and more than that, a friend has been declared a son or daughter of the king of the universe. When he uses eight straight adjectives, one after the other, to describe a biblically healthy, God-honoring thought life in verses 8 and 9, he hasn't just sort of changed the subject. It has everything to do with peace. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It's a great verse to memorize. Because, beginning of our text this morning, chapter 1 of verse 4, if you're not standing firm against unbiblical influences, if you won't listen to others and your pride deepens conflict, verses 2 and 3, if you're anxious and prayerless, verses 4 through 6, it's always rooted in sin. It's your pride competing with God vertically, competing with others for glory horizontally. Lack of faith is at root. Setting your minds on earthly things, end of chapter 3, rather than aiming at heaven, seeking self-glory instead of the glory of the only king, Jesus. And your mind will, if we can go back to that last slide, 
Think upon, dwell on whatever is false and crude and wrong and impure and ugly and contemptible and trash and worthy to be judged and discarded. Mind and heart are always aligned, or often. The solution can't just be stop it, think better thoughts. Reign in your mind. Just, just, you know, discipline yourself more. That won't work. Your only hope is to aim your heart's desire on something that is more worthy of your heart's affections. A love that is purer and more sacrificial. A promise that is surer. Uh, a delight that is more satisfying. A treasure that's more valuable. And it is only... Accessed, you will only find that by thinking of God and by thinking God's thoughts that are only revealed to us in the pages of Scripture, which happens to be all about pointing to the beauty and love of Jesus the Savior. And when you do that, as Paul ends this passage, the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. God, in the complexity of life, at home, at work, in community, in relationships, inside us, whether there's anxiety or fear or uncertainty or or loneliness, your word is very simple. You promise peace as we look to the Lord Jesus. Your peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So why do we look everywhere else at sin? Show it to us, Lord. Reveal it to us. Expose it in us. Bring it into the light that we might kill it and turn away from it. And show us Jesus. The lows to which he went and the highest high where he is now, exalted at your right hand, made glorious body and soul, perfect. The first fruits of those to come, all of us who believe. Show us our lows, bring us to the highs. That's the gospel. We trust in it in the name of Jesus. Amen.